just imagine, just over 2,000 years ago, the wicked men, the religious leaders that took Jesus and they whipped him, they put a crown of thorns on his head, um, they, they just about killed him before they even got him to the cross. Then they got him to the cross, and they nailed him to the cross, and they think that they've done it all, that they finally got rid of this nuisance, this young rabbi, and, and they put him on the cross, and he's dead. And then on Sunday morning, they get the report that he's no longer in the tomb, but that he's alive and risen. They're like, oh. Even probably more significant is the fact that Satan thought that he had killed God. <laughs> and on, on Sunday morning, Jesus said, April fools. <laughs> and Satan's like, oh no. Oh no. He just, Jesus just defeated my greatest tools that I use on humanity. Death, sin, shame, guilt. All those have been taken care of at the cross because Jesus was raised from the dead. And, and now he's replaced all that with life. He's given us um, forgiveness and honor and faultlessness because he was resurrected. And now the enemy's like, oh, I'm so screwed. And we're like, yeah, you are, dude. We're not living that way anymore because we live in a new covenant that Jesus brought to us. Now listen, Easter is the greatest day for humanity. <clears throat> It's the most prominent day in the church calendar. But here's kind of maybe the question you might have uh, that others have posed to me over the last week. Why does Easter always move around from one weekend to another weekend? It's not, you know, like Christmas is set. We've got that day set, and we know it's the 25th. Okay, let me help you out a little bit here, okay? I don't want to pop your bubble, but... We made up Jesus' birthday day. He didn't say, this is when I was born. We went like, hey, we don't have anything to do in December, so let's have a celebration and celebrate Jesus' birth, and we'll just give each other presents and eat a lot of food and, you know, gorge ourselves. And we all said, yeah, that's a really good idea. But then when it comes to Easter, we've got this problem because sometimes it's in March, sometimes it's late April, sometimes the sun is shining and it's really warm, and other times it snows on Easter Day. So it's kind of like, how do we get to this place where Easter seems to be all over the map? Why can't we just figure out what weekend it was and keep it there all the whole time? Well, I'm going to give you a little bit of a history lesson. Because back in 1563, there was a council called the Council of Trent. And at the Council of Trent, they decided to move calendars. In other words, change the calendar. It was the, the Julian calendars, which was what everybody was following, and that started the new year right around April 1st. And then they moved it to the Gregorian calendar, which made New Year's then January 1st. And what happened a lot of times is that there were a lot of people that forgot that they had switched this calendar, that these, this council at Trent made a decision that was going to affect the whole world. And so there were guys that on April 1st, they got up and they were wishing everybody a happy new year. And everybody's going like, hey, you fool, it's not New Year's now. It was back in January. You're on the wrong calendar, dude. And so that's kind of where April Fools started is because the people that realized that these guys who thought the New Year was starting on April 1st, they started to prank them. And that's really where it started. And so it's been going on since about the mid-1500s where they've been doing April Fool pranks on everybody and all that stuff. And so you're kind of going like, but what does that have to do with Easter moving around? Well, all of the holidays or holy days are, uh, in the Gregorian calendar, uh, calendar are set. But Easter, they left it kind of with the Julian calendar. And the way that you determine when Easter is, is it, it, it was actually determined during the 4th century, a group of guys got together and they, they said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to um, make the date of Easter being set for the first Sunday following the first full moon of spring occurring on or shortly after the vernal equinox. So we just had 
a full moon. You couldn't see it last night because the clouds rolled in. And by the way, that was the, a blue moon last night as well. And it's the last blue moon until 2020, just in case. And if you don't know what the blue moon is, it's not a beer, although it is a beer. <laughs> so, but uh, you can look it up. Um, so the, you've got the, the, this whole thing going on. And, and so uh, Easter can fall anywhere between like, um, let me see, March. Well, I got it right here somewhere, 22nd all the way to April 25th. So there's a wide span in which Easter can fall, but it, it's according to that one tradition. So this year, the first time in 50 years, Easter has fallen on April Fool's. So mom and dad, when you go home, you tell your kids, all right, go find the eggs and the treats that we've hid for you, and they'll go running out the door, and you look at each other and laugh because it's April Fool's, and you didn't hide anything. And you'll sucker those poor little rats, and they'll come in, and they'll be crying. And they're going to go, I didn't get an egg. And you just go like, oh, we're just kidding. Here it is. Eat it until you throw up or whatever, you know. I mean, it's, it's, it's good. Candy. Good stuff. So, but here's my promise to you this morning during my talk. I promise I'm not going to try and pull an East or a, a April Fool's prank. Uh, I did one time other when, when it was Easter, back when I was a youth pastor, and I got a... I was wearing an earring to church. And all the old ladies in the church were like horrified because they thought that I'd gone over to the dark side or to Phil's side. <laughs> um, but, but I really hadn't. It was just a fake one. So I'm not going to make, you know, do anything like that. But, you know, it, this day really is, though, for fools. Not that we've been fooled. But people think we're fools for believing that Jesus was raised from the dead. And it's not a day to be fooled, Easter. It's a day to be illuminated by the Spirit of God to the truth of who Jesus is. And there's one reason why we're here today. We're, we all have the same reason for being here. It's because this is the day we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. We are all going to be confronted with the reality of the Messiah's resurrection, of Jesus being the Son of God who was crucified, he was buried, and on the third day, he was raised to new life. That is why we're here today. That is what we're celebrating. And here's the bigger issue about what we have to deal with. Every person in this room, every person on the planet is eventually going to have to wrestle with the issue that Jesus is who he said he is that he came as the Son of God, that he died on the cross and paid a penalty that none of us could ever pay for ourselves, that we, be, we have been given eternal life when we believe in Jesus Christ, we accept the forgiveness of sin, death no longer has a grip on us, guilt no longer holds us back, shame is no longer our middle name, and we've been set free in Jesus to worship and to love God the way we were meant to. That's what Easter is about. But the thing that we have to contend with and wrestle is, with is the fact that Jesus is who he said he is. And you will do it one of two places. You will either do it this side of death where you're wrestling with the issues of who Jesus is and you will do one of two things. You will either come to the place where you bend your knee in submission to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life or what you're going to do is you're going to keep wrestling and not believing and then you will die and then you will meet Jesus face to face and at that point, you will contend with him because your, your knee will bow before him and you will confess that he is Lord, but it's still going to be too late for you because you needed to make that decision before you died. So we are all wrestling on this planet with the same issue. We will, we will have to contend with Jesus either before we die or we'll contend with Jesus after we're dead. And so that's, that's what we're talking about this morning. And... As we come to the Easter weekend narrative, just in case you're not completely familiar with it, I want to bring you up to speed about what really was going on. And it's a really important thing, one of the most important things that Jesus said to his disciples as he was preparing himself for the days that lied, were lying before him. Here's what he said to his disciples found in the Gospel of John, chapter 10. It said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, 
and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Now that's really important for us to know. We need to understand that as Jesus was coming to that point where he knew that his time had come, in other words, his time to go and do what he came to earth to do and set us free from the powers of death and sin, he was, he was making it perfectly clear that his father, a.k.a. God in heaven, had given him the authority to lay his life down. He also gave him the authority to take his life back up again. And there was nobody that could do that. No one could take his life from him, and no one could give his life back to him if Jesus didn't will it. It was by Jesus' will. So when you read about the crucifixion of Jesus, and you hear that there were uh, hundreds of soldiers that showed up to take Jesus from the Garden of Gethsemane down to the chief priest's house, and they were going to have this mock trial, Jesus went because he was willing to go. They didn't drag him there. If he didn't want to go, all he had to do was to tell his dad, hey, send 10,000 angels down here and wipe these dudes out. And God could have done it. And God would have done it. But God, God knew, and Jesus had this plan. They had this plan from the beginning of how this was going to unfold. They knew exactly what it was going to look like. They knew exactly what Jesus had to do. And Jesus was in the garden prior to the, to the people coming to take him for the trial. He was in the garden suffering in his own will, about the the path that was lying before him. You know what that path is called? That path is called the Via Dolorosa, which means the path of pain. Jesus was in the garden preparing himself to go down the path of pain because he was going to go and pay a debt that none of us could pay for ourselves. He was going to go and deal with sin. We can't deal with the sin issue on our own. We don't have the strength. We don't have the power. We don't have the purity to do it. Only Jesus does. Only Jesus is the one that could go to the cross on our behalf. And so he willingly went down to the place of pain and suffering for us. But as Jesus was, was going through his, his suffering on our behalf, there was a moment when Jesus said to those who were inflicting his wounds upon him, he said, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. They had no authority over him. He had the authority over all of it. The Father had the authority over it. We don't, you know, sometimes we think that, that poor Jesus, he got dragged screaming and kicking down to, to Caiaphas' house and he was put on trial and he went through all this stuff and, and he was an unwilling participant in it. He wasn't unwilling. He was very willing to go and be a participant in what lied before him and the things he had to do, deal with. Now here's the bottom line on, on the death of Jesus. If Jesus went to the cross and he died on the cross and that was the end, all the talk about the kingdom of God being here and now, all the miracles that he performed, all the, all the sermons that he preached, all the truth that he brought to this world, all the miracles that he performed, all that stuff would amount to just stories from days gone by. It would have just been this story about this really cool guy that came and did this really great stuff and he was probably a prophet of God and he did all this neat stuff and they nailed him to a cross and he died and they buried him and that's the end of the story. And it would have been just a tragic loss of a guy who really knew what it meant to, to love God. But that's not where the story ends. They put him in the grave and three days later he was raised to life. And that's where the story begins. Now, on Easter, there are typically four different types of people that show up for an Easter service. And those four people are kind of represented in this, this area of thought. The first ones are those who are, have a confident faith in who Jesus said he was. 
They know that Jesus is the Son of God. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was, he was, he was uh, punished on our behalf. He went to the cross and he died. He was buried and three days later he was raised to new life. He, he appeared to the apostles and to 500 other people at one time. And then he ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of the Father. And one day he is going to come back and set every record straight. All wrongs are going to be made right. All crooked paths will be made straight and everything will be good. Those people are confident in that Jesus is who he said he is. And they come and they worship on Easter because they're celebrating what Jesus did for them. That's the first group of people who come on Easter. Then there are those who are curious about Jesus. They are seeking to understand who he is and how he works in their lives. They're, they're curious because they've, they've observed other Christ followers, people who are Jesus followers, and they look at them and they see their lives that are transformed and they're going transformed and they're going like, I need that in my life. It looks like they've got something I don't have. And so they're seeking and on their path of seeking, what they're doing is as they're seeking, they're on a journey to becoming convinced that Jesus said who he is. And that's a good place to be. And they are probably like three quarters per, uh, three quarter percent convinced that Jesus said who he is. And they just need a little nudge from the Holy Spirit to push them over so that they go, I absolutely believe 100% with all my heart that Jesus is who he is. Those are the ones that are seeking to know Jesus in a more full way. The third group of people that show up on Easter are the skeptics. And the reason why they've come to church is because they're hoping that they'll be able to get more evidence or enough evidence to help them make a decision about who Jesus is. They're looking and listening and they're, they're observing what's going on because they just need a little more evidence. They're a little bit skeptical about, about this whole thing that Jesus really died and was buried and was raised to new life. They're a little bit skeptical. And, and it's not a bad thing because God always rewards the skeptic with evidence. The fourth person that typically shows up at Easter, is the cynic. And cynics are the people that they have, they've been studying, they've looked at all the evidence that's laid out before them, they know and they understand the evidence, they've got a clear picture of who Jesus said he was, and they, they've heard the, the eyewitness of other people, they've read enough, they understand, and after they've gathered all the evidence and they know everything they need to know, at the end of the day they say, no, no thank you, it's, you know what, I know it's all there, but I just can't believe it. And, it's not, and, and I just, no, not, not for me. Just not for me. And, and, they just, and, and the reason why they come to church on Easter is because that's what the family does on Easter. They go to church. So the reason I'm telling you about the four different groups that can show up on Easter is because we don't want to pretend that we're all here that everybody that came this morning is here for the same reason. I don't think we have any cynics. I don't know that. There might be someone who's cynical about it all. I don't know. Uh, but I do believe that we, ha we definitely have the convinced. We definitely have those who are seeking. And we definitely have skeptics. And skeptics aren't bad people. They're good people, as you will soon find out as we go through this together. And so that's what we're going to do today as we're going to, as that group of people, as we come together, we're going to take a look at the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, Jesus did this. He set him, Tony said this, uh, if you missed it, at his talk. Jesus sets himself apart from every other spiritual leader and every other religious entity on earth, major religion or none other, in the fact that all those other leaders, those religious and religions, they have all died, they're buried, and you can go and look at their, their grave or their tomb and you can see that that's where they are. But you cannot go to the grave of Jesus and find him because he's not there. That's what sets him apart, is he's the one that was raised to new life while the rest of them were dead. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take a look at the resurrection from the tomb, a view from the tomb. And there are a number of views from the tomb that will rate, relate to, I think, every person sitting here at one level or another. And so our first view of the tomb 
is from the cross. It's the place where dreams die and hope is lost. It's the view of the tomb from the place of the skull, also known as Golgotha, where Jesus was nailed to the cross. And and that view is a view of hopelessness. It is a place of desperation and despair because everything that was hoped for is now lost. The, The kingdom of God seems to have slipped through the fingers of those who were there looking at it through the cross. And now all they have are the stories of the good old days. Because all they did was they stayed at the cross. They didn't go any further. And we we pick that up because we see this taking place in Luke's account of the crucifixion of Jesus. And it says this in Luke 23. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Three hours of total darkness. While the sun's light faded and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into my hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds assembled for this spectacle. When they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. They, they, they realized that something significant of God had just happened and there was a remorse that they allowed this thing to happen. And now they're looking at it and they're saying, what we had in Jesus, maybe these people were some of the crowds that were fed by Jesus. Maybe it was some of the 5,000 who had been fed. Maybe it was relatives of people who had been healed by Jesus. Maybe it was the blind man who had seen who Jesus restored his sight to. And he looked at it and he's going like, I thought he was the Messiah. And now he's going away empty-handed. He's leaving because all the hopes and all the dreams and everything that he thought Jesus was going to be for him or for them as a, a group of people has all just died on the cross and now there is no hope for anyone because there's not going to be a Messiah and our hopes have been dashed in the stones that soak up the blood of Jesus at the foot of the cross. And so their view of the tomb is it's just a place where you put dead people and our hopes are going to die in the tomb. The second view from the, from the tomb is the path of unexpected optimism. Also in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, it says, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And, it, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. You see, the, the, the path of unexpected optimism creates a curious pondering because they walk in and what they did is these women, they were coming because they saw Jesus on the cross on Friday. They saw his body come off the cross. They watched the body being taken to the garden and placed into the tomb. And then they saw the guards roll a stone over the tomb and they left. And and in their minds and their hearts, they're saddened and they're sickened to their stomach because everything that they were looking forward to with Jesus has now come to an end. And so when they came back on Sunday morning, they, they were expecting to find a dead Jesus in the tomb who was only halfway prepared for burial and they came to finish the job. They're still mourning to death. They can't get their heads around the fact that Jesus was actually crucified and he was dead and buried in the tomb. And they either couldn't remember or they didn't remember what Jesus had said about himself. And so the angel nudged them in the right direction. And he said, remember how he told you when you were still back in Galilee that he had to be handed over to sinners to be killed on a cross and in three days rise up. Then they remembered Jesus' words. It all became clear to them. Jesus said he was going to do this. He said he was going to to become alive again. He was going to be raised from the dead. 
And that's all it takes when people are seeking God. They will hear some story about Jesus. They will hear something that Jesus said about himself. They'll, there's going to be a little something that's going to stir in their spirit and it's going to become alive. And it's that little nudge by the Holy Spirit to push them in the right direction so that they're one step closer to Jesus. Here's the thing about those women as they went. Their belief was that what they saw on Friday was the reality on Sunday. Their belief was that Jesus who died on the cross on, on Friday was still the same dead Jesus in the grave. That's what their belief was. But their desire was, that the, the desire of their heart was is that this was just a bad dream. It was a nightmare. And when they go to the tomb, they're hoping that this whole nightmare thing is just a dream and that Jesus really is alive because that's what their desire is. But what they believed was, is that he was dead. You know what? We all have a belief system. We all believe things that we hold as absolute truth. And then there are other things in our lives that are we prone to hold more loosely. They're not as absolute for us, but there might be some truth in them. And here's what we need to contend with when we think about our belief system. And oh, by the way, just in case you didn't know, even an atheist has a belief system. His belief system is not to believe in God. It's still a belief system. It's just non-belief. And so everybody has a belief system. But here's the thing about most people. Most people's belief systems are based upon desires, not truth. Let me say that again. Most people's belief systems are based upon desire and not truth. So let me put it to you this way. The person who's involved in a religion who, who is trying to make themselves and do enough good deeds to present themselves to God to where they've done enough good deeds to outweigh their bad deeds so that when they die on this planet, they go to heaven but they don't know for sure that all their good deeds are going to weigh, outweigh their bad deeds. And if they don't, then what they do is get, they get recycled. They, they were a human, and now they're going to come back as a donkey. How many good deeds can a donkey do? Who knows, really? I mean, right? And, and so, so they're always in this perpetual state of, of they think that they were someone else 10,000 years ago. Now they've been reincarnated to somebody else and now they're on the path of trying to do enough good deeds to outweigh their evil deeds so that they can present themselves good enough to get into heaven. Or, or maybe it's the other guy that has, is trying to do everything that his great prophet has told him to do so that he can do all the right things and, and meet all the requirements so that when he dies, he can go to seventh heaven and have 70 ugly virgins with him. <laughs> and, and the problem is, is that in either one of those two cases and every other religion, you never know if you've done enough. You never know if you have completed the task. You never know that you've got it. Because your belief system is based on desire rather than on truth. And that's what Jesus did. He busted wide open everything that anybody ever thought about the way we get to heaven, the way we enter into the presence of God. Matter of fact, when Paul wrote a letter to one of the churches, the Corinth church, his letter is it's called 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, and he's contending this very thought with them because he says this in, in chapter 15, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas, also known as Peter, and then to the twelve. So what, what Paul's doing is he's giving the scriptural account of everything that takes place with, with Jesus dying for our sins and being resurrected uh, on the third day, and it's all in accordance with Scripture. 
And then not only did he appear to Peter and to the other 11, but he, he also appeared to 500 at one time before he ascended into heaven, creating eyewitnesses. And what Paul says to the church is he says, 500 people he appeared to at one time. And most of those brothers and sisters are still alive and you can go and ask them about their eyewitness of who Jesus is. But Peter also wants to play the other side of the coin, or Paul wants to play the other side of the coin. Because in verses 17 and 19, he says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sin. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people most to be pitied. In other words, what Paul is saying is like, if Jesus just died and he was buried in the ground and he wasn't resurrected, we're the biggest fools of all for believing that. And, and we have no hope. We have no salvation. We have no eternity with God. We have been duped and fooled into believing things that are not true. And we are to be pitied above all people. The good news is Paul didn't stop there. He went on. And here's what he says in verses 20 through 22. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came, to, came death, by a man has, also, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. In Christ. If you are in Christ, you are alive. Yeah, that's a little bit weak, but we'll take it. Amen. The third view from the tomb is from the inside, and it's the view of the skeptic. God never dismisses skeptics as one with too little faith. And here's what he does with the skeptic. He rewards their, their skepticism with proof. In, in, after Jesus was resurrected, he revealed himself to the women, and they went and they talked to the disciples. And then after that, he, he appeared to Peter and, and John. He appeared to the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and as he was walking, he was revealing who the Christ was through the Old Testament. He, he opened their eyes to that, and then he opened their eyes to the fact that it was really him. And so he had this conversation going on. But in all of this, there's one of those disciples who says something like this. He says, unless I see Jesus face to face, and unless I can stick my fingers in the nail holes in his hands, and unless I can stick my hand in the hole in his side, I will never believe that Jesus is raised from the dead. I have to have proof in order to believe. You've got to show me. I've got to touch. I've got to feel. I'm not going to believe until I see it with my own eyes and I touch it with my own hands. And then in John chapter 20, it says, eight days later, later his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. When he said this to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Put your hand right here in the place it is in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Blessed are you because you have not seen and you have believed. And so I'm saying this to all of us who are skeptics, who are going, I need more proof. I just need some proof. Well, what Jesus did, he understood Thomas's heart and he said, you need proof. I'm going to give you the proof. I'm going to come. I'm going to be the proof. And he shows up and he says, go ahead, touch it. Go ahead, right here. Put your hand right here. You want proof? I'm the living proof right here. I am the risen Savior. I'm the living proof. And you know what Thomas did? He calls him, my Lord, my God. That's his moment of confession of Jesus Christ as his Savior. Thomas goes on from there into the, the southern part of India where he 
he, he makes disciples and he baptizes them and he teaches them everything that Jesus had taught them. And to this day, over 2,000 years later, there are villages down there that are 100% Christian villages. And they still have the original church that Thomas set up as a building for them to worship in. You know this because when you walk into the village, you will hear someone say, I'd like you to meet my, my uncle, my uncle John, and his last name is Thomas. Or you can meet my cousin from the other side of the family. His name is Thomas, and his last name is John. Now you're laughing. I actually had some friends from India that the dad's name was John Thomas, and his stepson's name was Thomas John. It was very confusing. But that's what Jesus did with the skeptics. He rewarded Thomas with proof that he needed to believe. And Jesus still provides the proof for the skeptics today. The fourth view is from ground zero. And it is of the cynics. I mean, they're right there. As I said earlier, a cynic is one who has all the proof and yet refuses to believe. In Matthew 27, the leaders that have led the march, the spiritual leaders, the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders that have led the march to having Jesus killed and crucified, they now come to Pilate, and here's what they say. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So they already knew what Jesus had said. The religious leaders already heard Jesus say, you know what? On the third day, you go ahead, kill me, because on the third day, I'm coming back to life. You can kill me, but you can't keep me down. And they're, they're afraid. They're afraid that, of what's going to happen, and so they're going to they're keep every possibility from happening what happens. And then the craziest thing happens is that uh, in 28, it says, And for the fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. In other words, it's when the angel came from heaven and he sat down in Matthew's account. It says that when the angel came and put his foot on earth, there was an earthquake. He rolled back the stone and these guards, these Roman guards who are the the best at fighting in the entire world, they fall over with fear like dead men. They faint away and they're just laying there cold as anything because it's just like they just, boom, they just fell over. They weren't dead They fainted out of fear. And here's here's what they did. In Matthew 28, it says, Some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. called fake news. That's what a cynic does. He hears the truth, doesn't like the truth, and creates fake news to cover his hind end. And that's what these leaders were doing because their worst nightmare came to to reality. The nightmare that the disciples had suffered on Friday got turned around, it got flipped on its head, and Jesus came alive, and that became the worst nightmare for the religious leaders because now they're, oops, we stepped in it. We did it wrong. We were wrong. They didn't want to have to go and apologize. They didn't want to have to say, hey, by the way, our bad, we killed the Son of God, the Messiah. Our bad, hey, you know, let's forgive one another now. You know, they would have to do that. But instead of owning their mistake and instead of coming to Jesus and saying, we were wrong, you are the Messiah, they created a fake story and paid for it to be distributed among the people. That's what cynics do. They have all the evidence in the world. They have everything they need to make a right decision regarding God. And they don't do it. They refuse to believe. And inevitably, 
they will be confronted with the reality of Christ, but it will be too late. So I want to take you to the place where those who are convinced, those who are seeking, and those who are skeptical, it's all wrapped up into one great little message that Matthew wrote. And it's Matthew chapter 28. And here's what Matthew says. He says, But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. And he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, where you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. This is the greatest narrative ever written for the history of the world. There isn't anything greater written for us, for everybody, even for the cynics. This is the greatest thing. On Friday, God died like a man, and on Sunday, the man was raised to life as God in all of his splendor. Every time a human encounters an angel in the Bible, there is fear. That is why just about every time an angel says, fear not or do not be afraid. And let me just say this. If you encounter an angel and they do not say, fear not, you should be really afraid because it's probably the, the judgment of Jesus right behind that. But the angels say here three things that we need to take notice of. The first one is, fear not. That is for the skeptic. Because guess what? The skeptic is fearful to step in and believe without seeing, without the evidence. The skeptic has this, this sense of fear in their life that I'm going to be duped into something that's not true. But the angel says, fear not. And the angel knows why the women are there. They're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He knows that they were there and he assures them that he is there for them. And with the best news ever, he is not here for he is risen as he said. This is their reminder. Jesus told the disciples that they would, he would have to die and then on the third day be raised from the dead. Fear not, skeptics, fear not. Second, the angel says, Come and see. Those are the ones that are still seeking. Come and see. Come and see. He says, come and stick your head into the tomb and you'll see with your own eyes that he's not here. Listen, the stone was rolled away from the entrance of the tomb not to let Jesus out, but to let the women in. The tomb was opened up so that the women could see that Jesus wasn't there. When Jesus was raised to new life, no rock was going to hold him back from going where he needed to go. He was out of there. The third thing is that the angel said, go quickly and tell. They were to go back and tell the disciples what was raised, that Jesus was raised from the dead and that Jesus would meet them in Galilee. It's the whole idea of this is that as one who is convinced, we go and tell. That's what we do. That is still the message of Easter. Fear not, come and see, go and tell. And some of you are probably just kind of fearful of stepping into that relationship with Jesus because you've heard things that are religious You've heard religious jargon. You've heard religious rules. And this is nothing that has to do with religion. It all has to do with a relationship with Jesus. So you have a relationship with the Father in heaven. So don't get hung up on that. Religion creates legalism, but Jesus is calling you to a relationship. And I would simply say to you, come and see. Now look at how the women responded to the message. They departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. I know what that feels like. Because there was a day, almost 35 years ago, I was standing at the front of a church with great fear. I was getting married. And, and my fear was, how am I going to be a good husband? 
my fear. My fear was, what does it mean for me to be the spiritual leader of my home? Am I going to be able to be the spiritual leader of my home? My fear was, am I going to be a good dad when I have kids? My fear was, am I going to be able to make it the long haul? But my joy was, is that that woman who's walking down the aisle to take my hand and for us, the two, to become one flesh, for us to come and be joined together, that woman was my best friend and I had great joy in my heart because I knew I would be spending the rest of my life and her life together in marriage and we would go through everything together and we would get to discover what God had for us and that brought great joy. And so that day I had great fear and great joy all mingled into one and I know what that emotion is like. And these women had the same thing coursing through them. God has given us those kinds of mixed emotions and we might have those mixed emotions about Jesus today. We might have the mixed emotion that I'm afraid to say yes to Jesus but I think of all the joy that everybody else has. I want that joy, but I'm afraid. Come and see. Come and see what what Jesus has for you. Here's where I want to take you as I close. Jesus gave us this assurance while he was alive. When he went to the grave of Lazarus, and, and he called Lazarus out from being dead into life, You know, Lazarus wasn't resurrected. He was just brought back to life because guess what was going to happen was Lazarus. He was going to die again. Jesus didn't die again. And so as he's standing there and he's talking to Mary and Martha, he says to the crowd that's standing there, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Your hope today because of the resurrection is that Jesus is the resurrection and the life and he gives you life. He gives you life. Now, how do you get that life? The big question is, how do you get that life? Paul made it really, this is the most succinct thing I can tell you. This is the most important thing for you to hear today. If you are a a seeker or if you are a skeptic and even if you're a cynic, You need to hear this one thing because this is the one thing that's going to be the most important thing for you to act on today. And it's what Paul said when he wrote his letter to the church in Rome. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You want to know how to get saved? You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and then you confess it with your mouth that Jesus was, is, is God and he was raised from the dead. And guess what? God hears that prayer and boom, you are saved. You don't do anything else. There's nothing else you can do. It's just that simple. I know it's the greatest news ever on the planet Earth and it's the best thing you could ever hear and it's the most life-giving thing you will ever get in your entire life and, and it is what God has for you today through the resurrection of Jesus because if Jesus wasn't resurrected, the cross would still just be a cross. It would carry nothing, no meaning. It wouldn't have the power of forgiveness. It wouldn't have the power of the resurrection. It wouldn't have the power of saving anybody. It wouldn't have the power of releasing you from guilt. It wouldn't have the power of taking you out of shame. It wouldn't have the power to do anything in your life. You would be the same miserable person, but because Jesus was raised on the third day, the cross has all the power of heaven. So here's my prayer for you, and it comes from Luke 24. This is when Jesus was with the two brothers that were walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. It was a short walk, half a day's walk. And he had walked with them all day, and then they went in to eat something. And it says, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight and they said to each other this is the part this is it did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road while he opened up the scriptures does your heart burn within you today because of what jesus has been telling you
my, my prayer for you today, for all of us, is that our, our eyes have been opened today and we see the reality of who Jesus is. He is not dead, but he is alive. So what's your view of the tomb? Are, is your view from the path a little skeptical, not sure, and so you're kind of hesitating? You just need, you just need to know a little bit more. You're a little bit skeptical. You don't, you don't quite have enough information. God will nudge you. Are you seeking God? Have you, have you stuck your head in? Did you come and see? Did you come and see? Because if you came and saw, you will go and tell. And God will meet you there. He'll make this real to you. Or maybe you're, you're with the rest of uh, a whole bunch of us in here today. We believe, we are convinced, and we are going to go and tell. I want you to know this. If you're still unsure... Uh, that you're only looking at the cross and you have no hope and it looks like despair and it looks like desperation. There's hope for you today because the tomb is empty and the cross has the power to forgive your sins. All you have to do is confess with your mouth and believe in your heart and you will be saved. That's what the resurrection is all about. What we're going to do right now is we're going to simply make that move because what would Resurrection Sunday be without us coming and celebrating what Jesus did for us? And, and we come to this place now where we get to gather around the Lord's table. And, and the way that you might be wondering, what, what does this mean here, right here? We have bread and we have juice, grape juice. The bread represents Christ's body. The grape juice represents his blood. And what it means is, is that anyone who has believed in their heart that God raised him from the dead and confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, this is for you. This doesn't belong to Wind River Community Church. It doesn't belong to any denomination, any other church, anywhere, on any level. This is the Lord's table. And what we're going to do now is we're going to gather around it and we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Amen? So will those who are coming to help serve communion make their way to the front at this time, please?